you're an artistic, creative person, self-doubt goes with the territory. Yeah. <laughs> but the ones that make it have this confidence, actually, that does come out. It's like this split personality, this, oh, but on the other hand, I'm going to make it. I am going to make it. And it's the ones that actually have that drive mm -hmm. that I'm just going to keep going that make it. And it's not the most talented ones, necessarily. Welcome to Dauntless Creators. From speaking to the self-releasing artist to the head of A&R at Universal Music, I hope to give you a better idea, whether you're an artist or aspiring CEO, on how to navigate your way through this unpredictable yet exciting industry. See you on the other side. I'm your host, Nina Rebessa, and on today's show, I speak to Claire Singers, an executive coach who specializes in educating people on how to enhance performance at work. She's also very vocal about the diversity issues in the music industry. Now, prior to her coaching, Claire was managing director and co-owner of LD Communications, the UK's leading music and entertainment communications agency. And here, Claire was recognized as one of the UK's most experienced PR consultants working on live event campaigns. She was also publicist to Mariah Carey, Bon Jovi, Pink Floyd, and Roxy Music. An important conversation about how the music industry needs to address the old boys club model and how we need to empower more women in leadership positions. Enjoy. Claire, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Um, so I guess I want to start at the, at the start. What's the, what was the first job you ever did in music? I joined a company called Lester Dixon, and they were, um, it's a young PR company, which was starting to specialise in entertainment. Um, and I think you'll probably hear that a, a lot in the music industry is who you know, the network. Mm. And this little PR company was started by a friend of mine called Wendy Leicester. And she actually had taken, when I was a management consultant, because that's how I started out. Right. In, she, in music? Um, no. Okay. No. As I'm working for a management ah. consultancy. Oh, okay. Um, and um, because I wanted to be a journalist, I did politics at university. I wanted to be a journalist. That didn't work out. I made a conscious decision that I, I probably wouldn't work out for it either. And um, so I then discovered the world of public relations. And we're talking 1977. I didn't know what public relations was. So I read up about it. And of course, it's totally about understanding how the media works, working with the media, being able to write, um, being able to see what makes a story. And I was in Manchester, and my first job was as a PR assistant in a management consultancy. And they're one of the big, they're called PA management consultants. Now, little did I know at the time, but I was learning about how to run a business, which I then subsequently went on to do with... How Sorry. How are you learning? How are you learning? Well, because when you're working for, when you're a management consultant, your role is to work with businesses mm -hmm. and you work on projects and you're, you know, you're taken into the business and, and you try and fix them and you come mm -hmm. up with strategies. And I was junior, I mean, I was only 22, but they were very good at sending us on management training courses. And of course, we know management training is very expensive. So to actually have two courses a year when I was being taught about presentation, marketing skills, 
I did a basic financial course. Mm. Um, that was incredible, all that education coming into yeah. me. Um, and I actually really enjoyed it. Intellectually, I found it very challenging mm. because we were working with bright MBAs uh, and I was actually just one of two females on the professional side. So that also equipped me in how to play the game how to work in a male-dominated environment, how to win their respect, how to handle yourself. Um, and so, yes, that was, that was a really great experience. And then sort of long story short, I then got transferred to, Lond to the London office. Um, and fast forward a few years, I was pregnant with my first child. And Wendy Laster came in to the company and she covered my role when I was on maternity leave uh, and she then went on to form uh, she actually she left PA to work for Richard Branson mm -hmm. um, and, as you do as you do <laughs> and so she was the in-house PR working on um, the mega stores when he started Virgin mega stores he had he's got this island Necker Island so mm -hmm. she launched that um, and then <clears throat> after a couple of years she decided that she wanted a set up her own PR company, which she did with a graphic designer. That's the Dixon side of things. Um, and so actually from the first day, I, and I, by this point, I had a two, I probably three children by then, um, I was going in freelancing. Mm -hmm. And what I brought to the business actually was my business knowledge and acumen and so we set up I set up systems in the company which just made us work much more efficiently right. and this was LD L, it right? was called yeah. LD publicity mm -hmm. uh, no actually it was called Lisa Dixon then um, so then in 89 I joined sort of three and a half days a week as managing director um, but Bernard Doherty also joined and he was a very well-known publicist and he bought within the Rolling Stones, Tina Turner. Sort of bringing in those clients, he basically put the company on the map, you, know, you can imagine. Yes. And then <laughs> Wendy decided that, oh, wouldn't it be a good idea if we opened an office in Los Angeles? So she went over to run the LA office, and Bernard and I ran the London office. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it started. Um, yeah, so we worked on the Mandela concert when he yeah. came out of prison, you know, 10 days after coming out of prison. What was like, what, what was that like to work on that? It was, the, it was the highlight of my career. Was it? How come? Oh, can you, can you share well, why? Well, because, I mean, everyone says about Mandela that he was the most incredible, charismatic, <laughs> godlike figure. Mm -hmm. And he absolutely was all of those um, and I still think he's a sort of a beacon of hope actually uh, mm. that someone can be incarcerated for 27 years and come out without any rancor or bitterness mm -hmm. um, and so have being in the same room as him and organizing a press conference and we had Jesse Jackson there and various other world leaders uh, and then he came out one of the balconies at Wembley Stadium and I will never forget the roar 
mm. the of the crowd. I mean, if Wembley had had a roof at that point, it would have lifted off. <laughs> and I just, it was a sort of pinch me moment. And I yeah. just thought, well, I don't think it's ever going to get really better than this. Um, but, you know, that was quite a long time ago now. Um, and we were lucky because... Because we did Mandela, you know, you do one big concert mm-hmm. and suddenly you're the expert. Of course. <laughs> so we did Live 8 and Live Earth um, and Concert for Diana. And that led me to working on various royal projects <laughs> with the press team there. So that was a bit of a departure from, you know, Guns and Roses and, and Aerosmith. And you didn't, I mean, I'm sure you didn't expect that. I'm sure that wasn't on your plan when you... No, when you, when you set out to go and work in publicity, no. right? So, so that's quite an interesting thing. I think I'd like to talk about mm. that. Um, you know, taking on projects that perhaps you don't think you're ready for, but doing it anyways. Yes, um, or that you have any experience in. Well, interestingly, because there's always that point of entry, isn't there? So, why are LD being asked to do this project? Mm. And it was because the the press office had no idea about doing a P- PR for a concert. So they could deal with the royal correspondence, but mm. they actually needed someone to actually get the story out to the entertainment correspondents, yeah. the showbiz writers. So they were tapping in to our expertise. Mm. And all, you know, all the stuff that we take for granted about, you know, dealing with rights holders and doing all those deals and dealing with the domestic broadcaster, all of that stuff that goes into, you know, putting on a big event. So... I was always very confident Mm -hmm. that we could deliver. And I think because of my management consulting background, I've always had self-worth, the confidence to be able to go into a meeting room and know what I'm talking about. Mm. And I think that also stems from having a very loving father. <laughs> right. You know, who was very affirming. And I, I and as a coach, this comes out time and time again, especially with senior women. Can you, know, you expand a bit on yes, that? Yes, it's um the lack of self confidence um and the lack of awareness of their inherent value. And are you saying that comes from the father? Well, I think it often does. I mean, I'm not saying anything here that's revolutionary. I mean, there's, you know, Mm. know, loads of research. It's because invariably the father is the dominant male in a woman's, a young girl's life for quite a long time. If you don't have a father, don't quite know that way. But actually a mum can, of course, affirm you. It's just having a parent. In my situation, it was my dad. um, And... I think that's quite an important lesson when you become a parent yourself, actually, to make people, make your children feel good about themselves. Mm. So I've never struggled mm. with confidence, whereas a lot of my clients do struggle. Um, and when you read about people, women, saying about their barriers to getting into the, the boardroom, it's often because they don't have that self-belief. Mm-hmm. To actually knock on the door and say, I want to be promoted. I deserve this. Yeah. Um, and I don't like to sort of generalise. <laughs> but um, men don't seem to struggle as much, in my experience, of making those asks. Yeah. And um, why do you think that is? I mean, what, or, and, and how do you help women 
kind of work through those barriers? And through coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you, we talk about that because coaching is about you surfacing your options and helping self-discovery. Um, and so I ask my clients to analyze what their qualities are, um, what people say about them positively in the workplace, and just try and do exercises and get them to actually articulate in our safe coaching space, mm-hmm. you know, actually, what makes what makes you good at something? Oh, actually, yes, I am good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, and, you know, we do written exercises. And if you actually start surfacing this yourself and remembering, you know, what went well this week and just little things, but mm-hmm. they, they add up. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Quite, that's quite a tangent there. That's all right. Because <laughs> um, you do, you talk a lot about diversity. Yes. And, 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 you know, you've been very vocal about that. Mm. And I think, you know, we're, we're living in time now where people are suddenly talking about it. Um, mm. But you were talking about how when you started, you had to learn how to assert yourself in very male-dominated industries. Mm. Um, so how, when do you think that shift, like, came about? Where Which people decided to actually pay some attention to the fact that there is a huge issue with in- mm. inequality and diversity. I think it's sadly relatively recently. Yeah. Because um, I started working in this space two years ago. And my motivation was this extreme frustration at the lack of senior women in the music industry. Mm. And over the nearly 30 years, that I've been in the industry, I haven't really seen a lot of shift. Um, and there are the, you know, there is the odd sort of female CEO and they're, they're sort of championed from on high. But until we reach critical mass, we haven't really made the progress that we should have done. So interestingly, it has been recent and the music industry has always been driven by pale males um, and they're paid an awful lot of money and so why wouldn't you cling on to power you know the position is very entrenched so all the moral arguments that people have been making you know quite a few years now about we need equal opportunities it's the morally right thing to do has not that's just water off a duck's back then the tech companies come along And the tech companies, of course, have introduced modern working practices. And so, for example, smart working, where it's task focused. So this is the job. Get on with the job. I don't really care where you do it and would like it done in two weeks. Output focused. And that's a whole different way of working. And what that means is that you are then including different people. So it's research has proven that smart working actually is much more inclusive. Because if you think about it, if you're, a, you know, a, a single mum, childcare is expensive, commuting into London is expensive. Mm-hmm. It's all these practical matters. If you're on the autistic um, spectrum, the, the tech companies have realised that they can use these people's talents, but they can't right. work in a traditional way right if you're disabled coming into london is tricky but you're extremely talented you've got a computer 
um, cultural differences, you know, on Friday if you have to go and worship or, you know, there's lots of different ways that smart working makes the workforce more diverse because yeah. it's, it opens the doors. Whereas the pale male model has closed the doors and it's actually suppressed diversity. Um, and I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago on smart working and, uh, and there were some traditional pale males, you know, in the audience. Uh, and I know that they are quite against this still. Right. Because um, it's loss of power. And the model that the traditional music industry is working on, we call it command and control. Um, it's quite authoritarian. Um, so you have to be in, it's also called presenteeism. So mm -hmm. be present. I want you in the office. You come in at 9.30, mm -hmm. go, you know, after six, um, five days a week. And it makes me feel powerful when I see my troops mm -hmm. out there. Right. <laughs> the other mo method, which is output focused, of course, is based on trust. So you're trusting your employees to work in this particular way. And one CEO said to me, it really annoys me when I ring on a Friday and they're, they're at Sainsbury's. If we introduce smart working, they'll just take the piss. Um, and I sort of said to him, well, if you can't trust your employees, then you shouldn't, you know, you're employing the wrong people, aren't you? Yeah. Now, what's the driver? Why they've suddenly started listening um, is because the tech companies are getting the best talent the music industry will always be a, a great place for people to apply they you know it's glamorous people want to work there mm. it's whether they stay and it's whether our diverse groups actually can survive in that environment and if you've got a google um i'm not going to mention facebook or an amazon or an apple which says yeah no you, we, we do flexible working we've got a great maternity package that's where you're going to go um and i also think with the me too campaign um and time's up that's mm. also put pressure on the industry to change on adapt. the industry to adapt and change yeah because yeah. i i mean i think you know there is a lot of a lot of there's a lot of small little companies popping out everywhere in the music industry mm. who are all trying to do it in a new way and trying to rework the model. Yeah. And I guess it's the big corporations like the Sonys and the Universals that are, that are it's, it's more difficult to make that shift because you've got so many different tiers mm. of people. How do you think they best approach that change? I mean, how do you even begin such a thing? Yeah, it's not difficult. Okay, um, <laughs> not great. Everybody, it's easy. <laughs> We're well, going to hear the it's, answer. It's not, it's not easy, mm. but it's not complicated. So when I say easy, I'm thinking from a logistical point mm -hmm. of view, you know, the tech aspect. But changing the system is not difficult. Right. And it has to come from the top. And... Every change in an organization, it can happen sort of in two ways. It's push and pull. So it would be great if one of the leaders of the big corporations, he, um, <laughs> would actually think, okay, 
this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a seven-step program to actually change the system, work in a different way, increase our parental leave. Um, we're going to build a talent pipeline. So all the pathways to actually including diversity and inclusion are already out there. You know, this company's already doing it. Um, so that's why I say it's easy because it's not like, oh, my God, where do I start? There's like seven main things that you have to focus on and suddenly you've changed the culture and you've wow. changed the system. And is that part of the smart smart working module? or oh, it's... Uh, well, smart working is one of them. Mm -hmm. um, the other one, I mean, there's um, you have to look, obviously look at your promotion policy. So that's where unconscious bias comes in. Right. So you need to have unconscious bias training and ask for, you know, diverse shortlist. Um, there's coaching and mentoring, mm -hmm. particularly to senior women who need that extra support. Um, there's the whole area around parental pay, maternity pay and leave because we're losing a lot of senior women when they come back after having a baby and find that they're in quite a family-unfriendly environment. Mm -hmm. And I hear quite a lot of women say, I just can't do the politics. You know, I'm, yeah. you know. Um, whereas if we could make the politics actually a bit more supportive mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and less about, you know, playing silly games... So there are, there is the pathway. So and the key, as I say, is always leadership, the people at the top. Yeah. But then people, I call it sort of grassroots sort of activism. They should be the millennials. See, my hope is in millennials. Great. Um, yes. I absolutely. had a question for you that on that as well. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. So this is why I'm incredibly hopeful because the baby boomers, they're sort of dying off. Mm. Um, and millennials are used to work, living and working in a diverse world. That's their environment. They also expect a more balanced life. Mm. Um, whereas the leaders of the industry now and in the past have been sort of a bit workaholic, sort of, you know, I'm working 24-7, you know, as a badge of almost success. Mm. A lot of them have had stay-at-home wives, so that whole side has been looked after, um, whereas millennials want to actually share parenting. Mm -hmm. You know, they actually want to be involved in the upbringing of their children. Um, and so my hope <laughs> is that once millennials reach leadership positions, that they will also drive cultural change now my son he was born in 83 he's just on the edge of the millennial period um and so he's coming up for 35 so he will be a leader in well he already is but the mm -hmm. head of an organization i imagine at some point um and my only concern is that they don't adopt the bad habits that they've experienced mm -hmm. which is quite a a human thing to do. It's quite a subconscious thing, isn't it? I mean, you kind of just pick things up without really realizing it. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, you said that, um, yeah, that, that, that coaching plays a really vital role in um, enhancing the performance in the millennial generation. Yes. Why, yeah. why is that? Um, I think it's important that we're coaching the future leaders of organizations. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, that's men and women. 
And coaching is a one-on-one -on -one intervention. And through coaching, a person can identify the leadership style that they want to aspire to. Mm. Um, through coaching, you can discuss how you've been managed that for the good, for good, and for for bad. Yeah. Um, now, how many people actually get the opportunity to sit down with with a coach one on one in a confidential space and remember perhaps experiences that weren't great, and we've all had them. Let's face it. But also, hopefully, that they've had good role models. They can say, when I'm a manager, I'm going mm. to be like that. But people don't become leaders naturally. Most people aren't natural leaders. And so you need to have some form of training or coaching or mentoring. But anyone can learn how to do it. Is that what you think? I do, yeah. actually. If they've got, if they want to do it, mm. if they actually want to become a good leader, then they can. Um, there may be some people on the edges <laughs> that haven't got the emotional intelligence. Um, and we know about autism, don't we, that they, one of the issues with autism is that there are challenges around reading social signs and being able to interact so that's quite a challenging area for them but um but i i have a great belief in human nature that pe most people actually want to do well and want to be you know an empathetic mm -hmm. leader i think i always perhaps it's me being naive but i think the bullying sort of leader is probably not content within themselves yeah you can always you, I mean I think I think people always argue that right that you know if, if somebody's not being nice to their staff it's probably because they themselves aren't feeling great about something in their life yes. right and but I yeah. think it's, it's hard then to not take things personally all the time mm. I suppose I think especially as you know young people in the industry you kind of come into this into a job and you hope it's going to be like it was at uni or how it was you know with your friends and suddenly you feel more restricted Yes. In terms of how you how you can act and how you can act and what you can share and what you can't share. Mm. Yes. I mean, it's quite um, it's quite a learning curve, isn't it? When you come mm. in, from, as you say, from uni, it's quite a different world. And suddenly you're in this corporation and you're not quite sure of the dynamics between mm. people and how the power plays work. Um and I think that can be quite a shock, actually, to young, yeah. to young people yeah. when they first enter that environment. And so with, that's with bigger companies. But you mentioned about smaller companies. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's some, I think that can be equally challenging. Because I think the danger there is that you end up working all hours <laughs> because they've got very limited budgets mm -hmm. that it can almost border on the exploitative because you know that that person is grateful for the break um, and wants to work in the music industry but um, I mean I did a talk the other day about you know, smart working at um, the ILMC and no IAFF isn't it and uh, and I s mentioned about the HR mm -hmm. and there was a titter and I went, oh, I get it. 
you don't have HR, do you, in your companies? Right. But they're so important. Yesterday I was at an event and some <clears throat> woman was telling me how HR is crucial because they find, they find the people who are right yeah. for your company. Yeah. But they also set working practices. Right. Um, mm. And so the harassment, um, uh, you know, issues that have been raised by the Harvey Weinstein, we all know that the music industry has similar issues. Um, and I think you'll find that a lot of companies until recently, please God, they have uh, rectified this, didn't have policy on workplace harassment. Mm. So if you were having issues, there was no one that you could go to. You just had to get on with it, and that can't be right. Um, so, you know, I am aware that it's working in a small company can have its challenges. Mm -hmm. mm. So I want to now jump back to PR. Because, mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, PR, I, I mean, you've worked with some great artists like Mariah Carey and, mm -hmm. like, Pink Floyd and Roxy Music. Um and I guess PR is about story, right? Or that's how I've always seen it. It's about telling a story. Um, how do you feel like, and do you feel like PR is different today than it used to be? Do you, yes. And if so, how? Yes, I do, because the media landscape changed so dramatically. Mm. So when I started, it was about the national newspapers and magazines and getting front covers uh, and when I left, it was about Facebook likes mm. and Instagram. And and I totally understand how important social media is and how it's enabled artists to almost cut out the middleman, to go straight to their, to their fans. So what, in many ways, very wonderful. Um, but it wasn't my world. And so I'd be going to meetings and I said, well, what's your social media strategy? And I'd say, oh, well, Ben will now, you know, right. Ben will now <laughs> yeah. talk about that. And I could sort of barely, you know, keep sort of my eyes from, um, you know, glossing over. Um, so that is a big thing, how mm. it changed. And also during the period when I worked, I went from the industry where as a tour publicist, money was no object. Mm -hmm. We would be traveling in a, you know, I mean, I'm to, obviously I've worked with big artists. Um, so they're, you know, private jets around Europe. I'd be flown over to do promotion with Mariah all the way from London to LA just for three days. Um, and CDs were selling mm -hmm. in their millions. Then Napster came along mm -hmm. and the internet yes. and the industry <laughs> took a dive and we were all wondering, my goodness, where's this going? And, and suddenly we found that we were charging the same fees, um, you know, in 2000 as we were in sort of 89. Mm -hmm. So it became quite challenging to run a PR business in that environment. Uh, and bearing in mind, we had 15 staff. So it's quite a, an overhead, and yeah. there were quite worrying moments. Um, but I loved every moment of it. There was very rarely a day when I would go in and think, oh, my God, I can't face it, mm -hmm. because every project was just so different. Um, and forming that relationship with the artist. So 
Yes, it is about finding their stories and packaging, packaging them in a way that you can communicate to the media which interests them and finding that point of difference. And that's is that a hard? strategy. Is that a hard process to find? Um, well, it depends who you're working okay. with. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> so then how do, you do, how do you manage the big personalities that is where it's quite hard to extract a story? How do you yes. approach well, that? Well, that's down to how you are okay. as a publicist. And I will maintain that to be a good PR, you have to be a bit of an amateur psychologist. Mm. And that, of course, has led me on to the coaching <laughs> Yeah, makes a lot um, of sense because I want to but with my coaching I want to give back mm. Nina so that's part of that piece yeah um but artists are very fragile personalities and I've always understood that and I've never felt intimidated by them and I think that's another important element if you're going to be a music publicist you can't be overawed by stardom um and and I think they sense that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen people come into the room when I've been there with my clients and they're almost hyperventilating. Right. <laughs> and I can feel my client almost recoil because it's, oh, you know, this mm -hmm. is a bit much. Um, so I think building that understanding and that empathy and I've never particularly felt they were better than me. So I've been able to, and I think being older helps as well, um, that you build a rapport um, and it's based on me understanding about you. Yeah. Caring about the human. Yeah. Behind yeah. The, the job title, I suppose. Absolutely. And that's how you get them to do six mm. hours of interviews a day. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which must be a hard task. <laughs> <laughs> because, um. yes, it's about understanding what they're going through. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they can come across as narcissistic in many cases, but they need that mm -hmm. to get up onto the stage yeah. and do what they do. So I found that building a relationship is absolutely key. I think, to being a good PR. So what do you think of all these all these companies doing PR today? Because I think, I mean, I have so many musician friends and they go and they, they're like, oh, I need to get a PR person. And, and they spend all this money mm. for someone who doesn't always deliver. And I just, I feel like I hear more and more stories like that. Mm. I mean, so how do you, what would you advise mm. to an artist who who's trying to get, you know, some get some attention from the media. Yeah. I think that you have to be very careful of someone telling you what you want to hear. Mm -hmm. um, and when, when you do start out, it, you almost look to the PR to wave this magic wand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to have some understanding of how PR works, i.e. you're only as good as your contacts, you're only as good as the the artist that you're promoting. So people might do you a favor, but unless the PR can actually say to you, these are your points of difference, this is how I think we can move forward with you. Mm -hmm. um, I know so-and-so on this paper, I'm friendly with this journal at radio. Um, and I think as an artist or the manager, actually, well, if you have a manager, and most, you know, a lot don't, I understand that. 
you have to kind of grill them, mm -hmm. actually. And you almost have to say to them, well, we'll give it a go for X amount of time. You know, I, what can you deliver? And you ha I think you have to be, these in this day and age, a little bit tough on the PR. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of artists, I think, have this <clears throat> sense of feeling like they're not worthy. So when f somebody is giving them a little mm -hmm. bit of attention, if a PR is turning around, like, we're going to do your PR, yeah. suddenly it's like, oh, my God, okay, I'll do anything. Yeah. Right? So mm -hmm. I guess it's about trying to shift that mentality yeah. towards actually being like, no, I mean, what I do is, is, is a value. Mm. And if we're going to work together, yeah. you're going to also do a good job for me. Because you'd like to hope that the PR, and this was always the golden rule at LD, we wouldn't take on a client if we didn't think we could deliver mm -hmm. something. Results was something we all cared about very deeply because I don't like failure. So for me, not to be able to deliver for a client, I would feel really bad about that. Whereas I think there's perhaps other people that don't feel quite like that. And mm -hmm. if they're an indie PR, they're desperate for work. They have to pay their rent, their mortgage. Do you see what I mean? There's, yeah. Everyone's got their stuff, haven't they? Yeah. Um, and also, an artist, you're quite right, feels sort of vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Is my stuff any good? You know, is this going to... Uh... So there's always those sort of gremlins in your head yes. questioning your art... Mm -hmm. Then a PR comes along and says, this is brilliant. This, I mean, I've heard it and I've just thought, oh. I mean, I've heard people do, PRs do this. Um, and you just think, hmm. <laughs> so on the one hand, naturally, you, if you really like the artist's music, you have to affirm them and give them confidence that you can deliver. But don't lie to them. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't think it's good, don't, don't work with them. Yeah. So I think there has to be integrity, and there isn't always. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the gremlins. Yeah. Um, I think we all we all can totally mm -hmm. understand that. How how does how do you deal with those moments? The moments of doubt, the moments when you do fail, the moments when you, you know, mm. feel like oh I'm not delivering what I hoped. I think that you've got to take a deep breath and push yourself forward because mm -hmm. what's the alternative so if you don't master the gremlins and keep them quiet and they will pop up they'll always pop up if you're an artistic creative person self-doubt goes with the territory yeah <laughs> but the ones that make it have this confidence actually that does come out it's like this split personality this oh but on the other hand i'm gonna make it I am going to make it. And it's the ones that actually have that drive mm -hmm. that I'm just going to keep going that make it. And it's not the most talented ones necessarily because the ones that often <laughs> have the biggest talent have also got that fragility yeah. where they just can't get the, the strength to push themselves forward. Um, and so I, I think that that side, that determination, that can often be the difference mm -hmm. between success and failure. Failure. Now, we always hope that there will be a great song. Um, and we all know that one song can do it, can make the difference. 
But writing that perfect three-minute song is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> and I wish more people could achieve it, but it's very elusive. Uh, and I think also now you ask me what else has changed. During my career, I worked with artists that have had very long careers. I mean, when you think of someone like David Gilmore or Roxy and mm. um, even Bon Jovi, um, yeah. you know, they have sold millions of albums and they, they came up in a different world where we had less demands on our attention. You know, mm -hmm. we had the album back in the vinyl days yeah. and it was well. Whereas millennials, it's crazy isn't it? You know, yeah. The digital, the noise, the noise. Everywhere, is just, all the time. Yeah. Um, and, and I sort of think to myself, where are these artists that are going to have these long careers? I mean, I'm not talking 40s, I'm talking 10. Yeah. Would be good. Yes. And I find that worrying, actually, this quick churn, this quick churn. And, and whether that's just how it is going to be now. I think it probably is. You think so? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I suppose un unless artists can figure out a different way to approach music and their teams around them, right? Because I think everything is, is, is changing so quickly and we either stick with kind of what we know and what we believe to be true from past generations or we try and figure out how we can maneuver ourselves in the new landscape mm -hmm. and try and actually create sustainable careers for artists. Yeah. So who knows, I suppose. Mm. I mean, sometimes <laughs> I ponder, and I, I, hope, I, you know, I hope I'm wrong. Pop music is, um, it's a simple form mm. and it's been going for what, since the 50s, 1950s, do we think, Elvis? And and I'm wondering, and as I say, I hope I'm wrong, I'm just wondering if it's been done. So at the weekend, you know, we were listening to Joni Mitchell and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and the <laughs> Finn Brothers and all these amazing songwriters. Um, and that's... I'm sort of always searching for a great song and, and you will have an Adele that that comes along and sort of goes global. Um, but has it all been done? Is it difficult for an mm. artist to come up with something unique that we haven't heard before? Yeah. And that's someone of 62 talking. So I have heard a lot and mm. I mean, I can listen to a few bars of a song and think, okay, yeah, that's there. Okay, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. It'll, mm. Yeah. I suppose. I suppose, I mean, the tech space, they're kind of, they're currently trying to find new ways in which they can work alongside music. Mm. Right, so perhaps the answer lies there. Um, but so what, what do you think artists need to think about who are looking to have a career in the music industry today? You know. Write the perfect song. <laughs> I think songwriting is really important. Um, I think perhaps, I don't know, being more rigorous with themselves. Um, rigorous in what way? Well, in terms of 
is this actually good enough? Mm. Mm? Instead yeah. of thinking, oh, right, well, I've come up with this. Um, yeah. I, I, I do think, I mean, I know it's tough because we see young artists that come to the studio and we talk to them and try and support, you know, help them with advice. Uh, but at the end of the and it's such a cliche, but it is down to the song that they write. What worries me is how young musicians financially can support themselves, especially from um, poorer backgrounds. And I see this trend where middle class kids are often supported by, you know, their mum and dads. Yeah. And I think that's um, that's not good for diversity mm -hmm. uh, and for the the talent that should be coming through from different backgrounds and I mean we managed a band many years ago and just doing the top the toilet tour as we called it then I mean you would have to have a roadie hire a van they'd have to be fed you know you're talking sort of well I can't remember how much it was actually but it did when you're earning 50 quid a night <laughs> <laughs> It's, can't go very far. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's very challenging. Yeah. Um, and then with streaming, that that's a whole other conversation mm -hmm. about the, the income that's coming down to artists because we know that Spotify are paying out a lot of money, but the deals that are done with artists are not always transparent. So that's a real issue. Um, about royalty streams mm -hmm. and that has to be sorted out and so that's another big thing of course that's happened in my career um, that it's all gone mainly digital hasn't mm -hmm. it and that the physical product um, is not selling as much as it was but that's brought with it income issues for young artists which I think is yeah, a problem yeah, something to be, again, a creative, a problem we have to look at creatively, I think, in order to solve it. Mm. Um, but okay, I'm going to ask you one last question. Mm -hmm. What's the best piece of advice that you ever received? Make the most of every day you're here. Mm. Yeah, I firmly believe that, that uh, life is short and precious, and, and don't waste it moaning and worrying about what if. You know, you have within you the power to achieve what you want to do i really do believe that um yeah so just make the most of it it's a wonderful life amazing thank you so much claire thanks it's a pleasure hey really hope you enjoyed this episode and if you learned something from it why not share it with a friend who'd also really appreciate the knowledge I'd also love to hear your thoughts and your feedback and any questions you may have, so feel free to tweet me at Nina Rubessa. I'm also always looking for collaborators and new guests, so if you think you can help, head over to be.dauntless.co.uk and send me an email. Till next time. <laughs>